One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast all about leaving the EU. As always, we are brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, pensions, investments, wills, that sort of thing, and the Greater Manchester Chamber of Commerce. Chambers of Commerce, is it? Chamber? No, no, chamber. we are just chamber. one chamber, yep. Uh, and I'm joined by Christian Spence. Hello, Christian. Hello. And Alex Davis. Hello. Uh, so, um, I'll just kick this off. We have a deal-ish. Yeah-ish, yeah. Yeah-ish, yeah. Go on, When was this? Was it Monday? I think this was Monday. There was a was, surprise announcement. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we weren't expecting anything. There was kind of some rumours flying around in the in the Sunday press, and then all of a sudden it was like, standby for a press conference um, on Monday morning, and Barnier and Davis were there, and basically we have the, the outline of a transition deal. Wow. So, well, why was it so secret? Good question. I think probably because by the sounds of it, they were still... Agreeing and redrafting it early on Monday well, yeah. morning. Yeah, it was odd. I, I read somewhere that before Monday morning or Sunday evening or something like that, the two hadn't actually seen each other in real life for four months. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Davies hasn't been getting involved in his hands. He's left it to the civil servants, which seems yeah. to show if you get David Davies out of the way, things happen. Um, that, I mean, all seriously, that, that is quite sensible. Yeah, it is exactly. You can't you can't expect the, uh, the the Secretary of State to do all of that work. That is what your that's what your officials are there for. Yeah. Uh, so we've got a, a draft transition arrange agreement. Um, it's not all agreed though. Um, it's it's colour coded. It time. is. We've got we've gone from red, white, and blue to, to green, yellow, and white. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, so it's three colours, yeah. Green is things where we have complete agreement. Um, some people have put it as uh, green are areas where there's been complete capitulation. <laughs> um, we have yellow, which are areas where things, some things still need to be ironed out or areas where we, we are just negotiating our capitulation. Um, and then white are things which still need to be discussed. Um, <laughs> yeah, You're becoming a bigger cynic, by the way, Jonathan. <laughs> So, give me an example, if there are any, of the UK winning a particular piece, of, you know, a particular issue, and the EU winning a particular issue. I, mean, I guess the latter is easier than the former. Um, um, it is. I guess the big. I mean, the, the UK has capitulated on quite a lot. I think the final agreement is people are saying it's probably about ninety percent of the very original EU guidelines that they put out last year. But I think, to be fair, the, the, the UK's made some ground. Um, 
mostly the ECJ is not there. There's there's talk of joint courts and joint bodies. That's encouraging. Um, which I think is, to be fair, I think is actually a pretty decent win uh, on the whole. We'll stay under ECJ jurisdiction for the transition period. Um, there's a few things not yet been ironed out. So, and actually, future governance is one of them, isn't it? Um, yeah. Uh, that's that's still to be worked through. Um, but the, yeah, there's not a great deal in it that's a, that's a big UK win, really. I think uh, there are positives within it, um, and you can definitely frame it that way. Unfortunately, there are massive caveats behind every single one of them. I think mm. is is the unfortunate thing. Like, like what? Uh, I mean, we have we have. Uh, there's broad agreement on, on some big issues. I mean, things like the financial settlement, um, we have agreement on. Um, I think that was going around the news that we're going to be paying that until 2064. 2064, I think, is the last payment date the OBR's pencil due. 2064. Which yep. is essentially expected, I guess, when the last of our current employees at the uh, at the European Union snuffs it and their, financial, their pension scheme uh, finally expires. Yeah, uh, uh, citizens' rights, we have agreement on that. So, essentially... Uh, EU citizens in the UK, EU citizens who come to the UK during the transition will have the same rights as EU citizens currently here. Yep, that's nice. Um, that's that's a good move. Um, the length of transition we have agreement upon, so it is going to go up until December the thirty first, twenty twenty. Twenty twenty, yeah. So it's a bit shorter than the UK government wanted. The UK government really wanted it to run to the end of March twenty twenty one, but uh, the EU has said no. So and so, actually yeah. that that's that's very practical from the EU side. Just for their whole accounting process, because essentially their budget runs to the end of 2020, so oh, there'd be all sorts of additional faff, to be honest, if, yeah. uh, if the UK stayed beyond then. So on that night, there's going to be some, I would have thought, rapturous New Year's Eve uh, celebrations from some groups of the population and some really weird, <laughs> weird, weird vibes going on at some of the other New Year's Eve celebrations yeah. for the other half of the population. Weird. Yeah, this is a strange one. I know it's approximately <laughs> in any way, shape or form. But what do we do when we leave? I mean, is, there, is this cause for a celebration? Well, some people presumably it is. Well, for about half the country, yes, and for about half the country, no. Um, uh, I mean, I would have thought, you know, if Big Ben isn't fixed, then there will be very strong campaigns to make sure that the bell is available for the uh, uh, for the tolling of midnight. It has to be marked in some way, and it can't all be negative. I mean, it'd be, it'd be an awful thing if we go through all this process and actually... It's just quite a sombre occasion, like a funeral or, or, or something. A day of national mourning. Yeah, and of course, and that's it. And of course, the thing is, a lot will change on the first of January, twenty twenty-one. We know we, the transition agreement keeps the status quo between now and then. The truth is, of course, what this doesn't tell us is we still have absolutely no idea what the world on the first of January, twenty twenty-one is going to look like. This, that has yet to be flashed. This out. is one of the biggest issues with the whole thing. Is that it's being called trans. Uh, they seem to be calling it a transition period. We still seem to be calling it an implementation period. Well, is this not because Boris Johnson wants a transition period? But isn't there something like one of the ministers wants to call one thing and therefore it has to call something else? There, there's a bit of rhetoric, yeah, rhetoric going on, but it not, all adds up to the same thing. Yeah, none, of, none of it matters because it isn't a transition or an implementation period. Oh, it, it's just a standstill period. It's an extension of the status uh, quo, we, yeah. We, don't, we still won't know what we are transitioning to. Well, that actually works... Better, does it not? Because at least, I mean, in a transition period, we just take the rules. At least in a standstill, we get to make some of the rules. No, we don't get to make any of the rules <laughs> in a standstill. No. Well, why not? Because I thought that would be the difference between extending Article 50 and the transition period. No, no, extending Article 50 would have allowed us to keep our say in making all of the rules. Yes. What will happen here is we formally leave the European Union on the 29th of March next year. 
um, which means we lose our MEPs, right. we lose our seat at the European Council, we lose our seat on all of the bodies that start to make EU law, but we are still party to all of that law. So, um, why, so, okay, so what's the difference between a standstill and the transition period? So we've got well, the difference between it, it can't be a transition period because we don't know where we're going at the end of it, if, if you take, if you take yes, what I mean. we don't know what we're transitioning to. Yeah. Ah. All we're doing so is extending the, the status quo, but taking our say away. Interesting. So I wonder if that actually this will form the basis of after the transition, whatever period it is. If it does, I think a lot of Brexiteers are going to be quite angry. Yes. I mean, I think they are at the minute. Um, for the reasons we've just outlined, but if this if this goes beyond twenty twenty one, and my guess is that it will. Uh, my guess is it probably will as well. Well, it, it, it's not a transition period. It's not an implementation period. So, if within that time frame we figure out what we are transitioning to or what we are implementing, it's a given that there there will then need to be a period of implementation because we can't yes. <laughs> we can't switch we can't switch overnight to the new arrangement once it's been agreed. So it's going to go past 2021. I mean, and that's that's overlooking the fact that no one believes that this agreement can be can be can yeah, be drawn up in this time within yeah. the time frame that we've got. Um, so the, uh, call it. So actually, it's the pre-transition phase. Okay, you, you that's, call it that. that's not a bad. Uh, yeah, copyright that. Yeah, yeah we'll have that. Phase. One, one um, of the scary things is that there is no provision in the agreement whatsoever for extending it beyond 2021. Yeah. Which raises the significant possibility that towards the end of this period we will have to ask the EU to extend it. And one of the points which I made is, if people think that our negotiating hand is weak now, wait until we get there. <laughs> yeah, that's not uh, a bad point. Yeah, because um, it, it, in many ways, because actually, you know, and we were one of the ones who actually put out a pretty positive press release because this is an, this is a massively important political moment. Yeah, but the huge challenge is it's kind of just kicked the can mm-hmm. because. We don't know any more because, of course, all this runs under the, the, you know, the catchphrase of nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. We still got the Northern Ireland border to deal with, which has not been dealt with in this yet. That's, yeah, that's still got to be handled. That's going to be completely shelved. So the truth is, what we're really telling businesses is, you know, a few days ago we had no idea what the world on the 29th of March next year was going to look like. We now do know what the 29th of March is going to look like provisionally. And our view is the world isn't really going to change until 2021. But there is still a risk that the world changes radically next March. Because this has yet to be agreed. We've still got Northern Ireland borders to deal with. We've still got security to deal with. We've still got governance arrangements to deal with. And then it's going to get through um, the European Commission and through the Parliament, and through the 27 member states' parliaments, and through the sub-national parliaments in those countries which have them, it's still got to do all of that. And a failure at any one of those stages means there um, is no deal. So I was about to question if it does, because I was under the impression that the, lo- the rules changed somewhat since then, but that's only regarding trade deals. It's only specifically regarding yeah, trade. This, this is, is a primary, tr- primary treaty change, essentially. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so that could be a little bit of a sticking point. Yeah, so essentially, yeah, we still, there is still no cast-iron certainty that everything will be okay on the 29th of March. I do March. wonder if we're just going to lose a generation to this. I mean, the politi- I mean, I think even with good luck and a following wind, this will be on politicians' desks for at least the next decade. Yeah. Probably more. Even with everything going perfectly to plan. Uh-huh. Um, with politics getting in the way... You've another 20 or 30 years. Yeah. So, you know, you know, you've probably cynic before. 
Actually, I wonder if it's I wonder if it's a pretty good thing to have our politicians tied up in something which which is not us actually. Well, I mean, part of me thinks there's there is something positive in that. I like the idea of politicians having less time to legislate yeah, uh, and not changing stuff. The challenge is stuff does need doing in the meantime. So what I would say is, you know, any other nation would handle this quite easily because their central government would be bogged down in foreign policy and local and regional government would carry on and run everything. But our local and regional government still doesn't have any powers. They're still massively uh, hands tied behind the back by Whitehall. So actually we still need Whitehall to do stuff. And I think that's the challenge. How much more power would somewhere like Manchester or London need in order to implement the things that you'd like them to implement? Um, Colossal. I mean, don't forget those. We ha- our local, the big one. I mean, local authorities' hands in this country are tied in many ways. The really big one is fiscally, um, so they can raise their council tax, but within pre-described bands that uh, national governments set. They collect their business rates, but can do very little about what that money is spent. For everything else, they need Whitehall gives them a block grant, and they have zero powers beyond that to look after their own economic fortune. Um, now that is. Incredible outlier in the whole of the rest of the developed world. So we're looking at local authorities having genuine, true autonomy over five or ten percent of their budget at most. Most cities around the world would take seventy or eighty as a standard point. Wow. So would you be looking at stuff like um, raising actual income tax or having local income tax, local sales tax, tourist taxes, all of those kind of things? Oh, wow. Yeah, that is um, yeah, that is quite a dramatic development. It's a huge development, yeah, and, and even in the places with the most evolution here, London and Manchester, we're still a long, long way away from that. Right, so you've got your list of the pros and cons there. Um, you very well. Have you, you briefly touched on on, on the pros. Uh, anything more you'd like to say about the cons? Because that's the rest of your just just to give the listeners an idea. Alex's piece of paper has about an inch worth of pros, and then the rest of it is all cons. Yeah, it's as, as I said at the beginning, there, there are positives, but there's caveats to all of them. So one of the big ones, which is being tossed around as a big win, is the fact that the EU is going to allow us to negotiate uh, and ratify trade deals with third countries during the transition period. Okay. Um, those deals still won't be able to come into force uh, until after the transition period, but they're happy for us to go and talk. Um, but there's just, for me, this is just a total red herring, and there are big issues with the whole idea of it. First of all, there's no, there's, there's no agreement in this as to what happens to the EU's current trade deals post-transition. That's still kind of up in the air. Um, oh, we've got a footnote. There's, oh, there's a footnote. There's yeah. a footnote. Yeah, so yeah. all of these issues. So 52, 52 countries, I think. Yeah. Maybe even 53. I can't remember whether Canada's in the first batch or not. Plus another, what, 750? Yep bilateral treaties are we're party to as part of being members of the EU the EU is essentially saying the the way we'll spin this is we'll ask all of the other signatories of those treaties to just pretend the UK is still in the EU for the next okay. 21 months the EU has no binding power to be able to make them do that um, now yeah, I don't know what else to say. That, that, that's, that, that's, for the, that's for the transition period I, I was talking about afterwards yes, exactly. even for the transition period there's no I, as, as I see it, there's no legal backing to that position. I mean, have South Korea and Canada been consulted as to whether they want, you know, they want those things to... So, I mean, South Korea has already raised, a, raised a, um, an issue about that, as has one of the South American countries, I can't remember which. Because right, yeah. essentially, as we said, you know, Britain is in the, its weakest negotiating position it has been in a couple of centuries mm. in terms of international trade. Um, 
you know, as, an, as one of those countries, depending on which way your trade flows are, you'd kind of be mad not to try and take the opportunity to yeah. strengthen that in your favour somewhat. Do we know what these objections are? Or do you just know that they've objected about some? Uh, I just know they've objected. One of them was around quotas. So this is a big one, of course. So we had pe- people have talked about the, the free trade agreements from a tariff's point of view. Um, the tariffs are all so close to zero in most of these now. It's yeah, With the exception of little bits of the economy, it's, they're broadly relevant. The big challenge will be on quotas. So quotas are usually on the basis of you can import... Let's imagine the in the EU's... Um, common commercial policy in the customs union you can import you know first hundred thousand tons of beef yeah. at zero duty second two hundred thousand tons at five percent and then it's you know a huge number after that the question becomes what share of that one hundred thousand tons that can go into the eu is the uk's share and what share is the eu's share um and each country you to each third country will have its own view on what that should be how do they do it now um, they do it now very, very slowly. So it is only last year that the revised schedules of the EU from the accession of the Eastern European states in 2004 were finally ratified. Okay. It took 13 years to agree the new schedules for the imports uh, into, the, into the A8. Hang on. Let me understand this. So, sorry, so how... So if there's, say, a beef... Uh, you know, if, if, if there are beef um, imports, how do they how do they measure where it's come from, and does that matter? So it's all it's all measured. It's all caught in the. Uh, this is what customs borders are for, essentially. Yeah. So you know where everything comes from. So the, from the UK and the EU side, you could very easily say, "We'll take the last three years' worth of imports of each of these, average them out, and we'll split them like that." But that's across the block. That's across everything coming into the EU. Yeah. What you will more probably have is countries like, say, Brazil or New Zealand, who are big exporters of, say, meat mm. to, uh, to the European market. One of them might say, well, OK, you're saying, you know, you know the, e- the UK was responsible for, I don't know, 15% of all EU imports, so that's the quota they get. New Zealand might say, yeah, but we provided 90% of the UK's import of our New Zealand lamb. Or Brazil might say, well, actually, we use the entire EU quota sending our beef to Britain. All of a sudden, those countries see duty-free trade into the UK and the EU compromised from what they've had before. And they may well want to raise objections. How all that pans out, we've yet to see. But that's just sort of a, just one little, little glimpse into a very complicated area. So, do you expect this to be replicated many, many times as... Yeah. Right. This, this, is, this is the big challenge. So we're in the process of repli- what we call replicating our WTO schedules. So we just cut and paste as much of the EU as we can. It does seem absurd. I mean, this is just me being um, you know, naive to trade. But it does seem absurd to me that I want to sell, to sell you beef. You want to buy beef, but Alex has to make a note of it and record it all in and record it all out. Yeah, and, but then maybe take, and then maybe, t- uh, and maybe take some cash. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it, it's just the way international trade works. You don't have to within the EU. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you just put it in a box and stick it on a wagon, um, and it's done. No, that's it. The world is complicated, and that's one of the big things. You know, we've we've kept coming back to this podcast series. Is the problem is where the world generally is having its eyes opened, the UK side particularly, just to how complex trade is, um, and the regulations are hard. But in many ways, it's the world of you know the the world kind of post WTO and. EU and regulation has got incredibly complex 
to be able to facilitate trade easily. The complexity actually makes yes. getting stuff overboard as easier it, it always, than it was before. It reminds me of you know, when someone in, uh, introduces some sort of invasive species into a food chain and then you've got to find something else to eat the, inv- <coughs> eat the invasive species and then we'll have more and more things and eventually it all crumbles. But they actually seem to introduce so many invasive species that some, um, it somehow works. Somehow, yeah. <laughs> the world of trade is complicated, let's say that. Yeah. Um, now, I'm pretty sure I got this from Alex's Twitter, because I get most of my um, Brexit stuff from Alex's uh, Twitter. Right. <laughs> yes. um, was there something which you tweeted the other week about the EU prepare, sorry, the UK preparing basically a, custom, like a, customless, a customless border? So, so one of the options was... Yes. Yeah. Can, can you explain this in, in, in more detail? I don't remember what this was. This was a story which came out, uh, I think it was earlier this week, it might have been over the weekend, might have been this weekend, and basically someone in government had suggested that the way they could solve the Northern Ireland border and, oh that's it, they would make sure there wouldn't be any queues at Dover or Calais, for a border is two-sided, because we would simply not implement a customs border at all. Oh yeah, yeah, right. Now this has so many holes in it, right. it's hard to know where to start. I mean, okay, so... First, first of all, is this a serious suggestion? Is it actually on the table? It can't be. It's against the it's law. A, it's against the <laughs> law, yes. <laughs> so it would break WTA rules. Okay. So you are required to have a customs border um, to protect areas. Either way, whatever we decide, the EU will erect a customs border around its around its customs union. Right. That will happen anyway. Um, so kind of you saying I'm not going to have one on the other side doesn't actually matter because... Every well, line, in, every yeah. line has two sides. Yeah, so, in, oh no, he's all still in the room, of course. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So you got all that. So yeah, secondly, it's against WTO rules. Thirdly, we can't. It would stop us doing any free trade deals of any meaningful sort with any other country because yeah. Yeah, yeah. to go to I don't know to go to Mexico and say we're going to give you zero tariffs, zero quotas, bring in whatever you like. To be able to do that, we'd need to know that that crate has come from Mexico. Would we? Well, you wouldn't without a customs border. And I was saying, why, why would we want to do a trade deal? We can just put it through that border that you're not enforcing. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Well, it, to be honest, it makes things a lot easier. There's no more deals. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and, the, and the UK spends most of the next decade in disputes at the WTO court. Which, again, it's, it's a, we talked about this before, the messaging from the UK, when it talks about we're ready for the deal, oh, we're not ready for the deal, it's signed well, it's politically agreed, and there's all of this conversation is going on publicly in front of countries with whom we are about to try and open some major international treaties. And anything which sort of just makes you look a bit of a wally in all of this is not a good way of sort of setting yourself ready to go out into that the brave is, world. That is true, but we don't really help ourselves. I mean, you know, regardless of what the politicians do or not, one of the, one of, one of the sides, whether it be the Brexiteers or the Remainers, are always going to kick at the fuss. No one is going to be completely satisfied, oh, no, well, which I, is the and problem I don't with our a, negotiating position. Yeah, that, that's it. But I don't have a problem with Brexiters or Remainers or you know, varying bits of the public holding different opinions. The fact when you've got your, you know, your major four officers of state who can't agree, yeah. that is a problem. That is a really big problem. Who are we negotiating with, you know, and, and what is our negotiating stance? Is stuff we talked about before. It just baffles me the things that people say, that, and they say them as if the rest of the world can't see that we're saying it. And, and, and this, we've said this multiple times with the whole "no deal is better than a bad deal" thing. That a bluff doesn't work if the other side can see that you're bluffing. 
And, and then the best, a prime example of this, so was, this was a few weeks ago, I think it was Liz Truss tweeted, um, no deal is better than a bad deal. And then she replied to the, her own tweet saying, and by saying that, we can secure the best deal for Britain. And I was like, so you've just, you just bluffed and then replied to yourself saying, that's a bluff. And by using that bluff, we're going to get a good, like, they can see both of those tweets. <laughs> they can see both of them, so it doesn't work, does it? It is stuffing, actually, how ill-equipped MPs are for this sort of negotiation. For all the other things that they are good at, and I'm not completely down on MPs, how ill-equipped they are for, for this. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. There's a colossal knowledge gap. And, I mean, I think some of this goes back... I mean, the fishing stuff, actually, you know, fishing came back into the headlines again this week. We talked about it yes, last week, so we won't revisit it in a lot of detail. Um... But it's the whole thing about, you know, we've not, because we've not, we've not had an independent trade policy for, you know, 40-odd years now, everybody, well, first of all, most people in Parliament don't remember the world when we did have control of our own trade. But it appears that the only examples they've got of how things work is in a, well, A, us in a pre-EU situation, but also pre-WTO, pre-GATT, and they're trying to reverse back to that world. Um, we see that a bit with the fisheries. So, you know, I've said, you know, said, you know, I understand entirely there are communities for whom fisheries are colossally important in the way that you know, mines were important to particular areas in the north many years ago. Um, but the world's moved on. The world's moved on, and you can't unscramble the egg. You know, you can't take the cake apart into its constituent pits again. So, we are where we are. You need to deal with the world as it is today, not as how you remember it being in the 70s or. In some kind of way, and so much of that rhetoric from the, you know, from the hard Brexiteers, from the Rees-Mogs, has been about that. You know, oh, we can just, you know, we don't need a customs border with Ireland because we didn't have one um, before we joined the EU. It's like, well, no, we didn't. But we, the point is, we did join the EU at the same time, and we erected a common customs border around ourselves. So you can't undo that now. Or at least you can't undo that on your own because all of that was taken with joint decisions with Ireland. Um, Yes, the, the, yeah, the, the omelette can't be made back into eggs again. So we've got to work with that. And the fisheries is, you know, is a is a good one of those. People said, yeah, well, you know, if we got back control of our waters, we could double, quadruple, you know, quintuple the size of fishing to the UK economy. But that would take it from zero point zero five percent of UK GDP to some of the number that's larger, but still essentially irrelevant. Yeah, and of course that's a very hard. I understand it's a very hard thing for anyone in the fishing industry to hear. But you know, one of the things I think we've talked about before in this. Now we have, you know, you, you've cried. The UK has clearly cried to have sovereign control and to have decisions. Well, now it needs to start taking them and understanding that in trade, as in all economic stuff, there are trade-offs. You've got to decide. You're going to give a little bit here to win a bit here. Now, what is it important that you win? Because the truth is, the next fifty or hundred years. Uh, strength in the UK economy and even in those little towns around the UK is not going to be re-won with the fishing industry you know, are we going to trade off pharmaceutical regulations in favour of fishing that would be a very bad move yeah. are we going to trade off financial services to have access over our own fishing waters that whilst I suspect lots of the British public would say yay let's get rid of the bankers is not going to be any good for the UK in the long term yeah no uh, financial services uh, has, has come up in this um, and it's not a particularly great deal. Well, well, it's not. Well, it's not in the deal at all. I don't think. I think. I think. Is this some today? Yeah. There was not yeah. the FT today. Uh, there is. That it looks like they're taught. they yeah. They might soften up a bit on financial services. Oh, um, 
so initially, yeah, it's not in the deal at all. Um, they, I think they want to keep it as very, very simply part of the single market yeah. and, uh, and not including. People say financial services are in CETA. Not in any any meaningful sense, they're not. Um, Just on financial services, uh, we have, is there any element from the EU? Now, I know they want to get as much financial services out of London, and they, and, and they do anyway. I mean, even if we were members, they'd like to get Abso- Absolutely, yeah. France, Germany, Netherlands, Ireland, yeah, are yeah. all absolutely chomping for that. Is there any element of it where they think, actually, maybe we should go easy because they do a lot of things which we don't have the capacity to do there, at least in the short term? You, Alex, Alex shrugs, so I'll have a go. Um, I think so. I think, there is, I think there is. So, I mean, the euro, I mean, the big one that always comes back to is things like euro bond clearing, yeah. uh, which takes place, you know, I think like 90% of global euro clearing takes place in the UK. Um, people said that the EU says it should happen only within EU member state territory. Um, maybe, maybe not. The challenge is how on earth you move that sheer volume of trade that fast. Mm-hmm. So I think there is an acknowledgement that they would love to grab it. Of course they would. And again, I think this is a realisation that the UK government is only slowly coming to, that the EU's role in this negotiation is to get the best possible deal it can for EU member states. Yeah. Of course it is, as in our role. It's not, because they've said, oh, it's in their interest to look after us. It's like, it will, they will look after us, providing they can look after themselves as well. But if it comes to a crunch, they will prioritise, uh, you know, the health of the EU. Of course they will. As you said, Frank, you know, Frankfurt, Paris, Dublin, all want a big share of UK financial well, services. I'll give you another example. It wasn't so long ago that, uh, you know, I mean, banks still are in the bad books, actually. Yeah, absolutely. But... Um, you know, bankers' taxes or bankers' bonus taxes and all, um, uh, and all the rest of it. I think it was Barclays that were threatening to move elsewhere. And the problem that they had is no one really wanted them. I mean, they did want them, but the complexities of re-headquartering a head, um, head bank and then getting enough regulators in, I mean, it, you've got to have a whole new team to regulate an HSBC or, or, um, or a Barclays. Yeah. It's not easy. No, exactly. And the, you know, the, this is one of the UK's you know, utter successes. You know, whatever your own feelings are on you know, financial services and the banking sector, the UK is globally leading at this. Um, you know, New York could nip at our heels, but not much more than nip. And the second closest is, so the third closest, as it were, number three in that list, is way behind. So, I mean, there is no obvious global. There is nowhere where London's financial institutions could just up and go to. Yeah. Uh, because of that wider infrastructure, um, I think there's also wide societal stuff. So you know, we'll, we in the north might grumble about London, but it is one of the most desirable cities uh, on earth. Frankfurt is a lovely place, but it's not the kind of place that you see the great global jet set going and moving to and living in. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, sorry if there are any uh, German people listening from Frankfurt. It's a beautiful place, but it's not got that kind of global cachet. Paris, Paris has some of that, but it's also got Sorry. much higher taxes. I, I, I don't mind saying that. I don't mind say, uh, saying, saying, saying this publicly either. I've been to Paris; it's dreadful. Well, that, that's, that, that may be your opinion. I rather um, like Paris, um, but and <laughs> you know, and I'd happily move to Paris. But I think the point is, most people in financial services would. Oh, I would. Not do that. I would. I, I like would, the Parisians. I would suggest if they, if, if, if it was to make a proper run at. Um, Banking industry, I'd probably relocate it to Barcelona or somewhere. Oh, or, or Barcelona. But I mean, I think the, probably the one to look for in the in the short term is probably a place like Dublin, uh, yeah. where there are there are substantial settlements all, already there. The population is highly skilled, very attractive corporate corporate tax and rates, language, common language, uh, and you could commute it from London. Yes, absolutely. Um, right, that, that was pretty, pretty <laughs> comprehensive. Um, anything else? Anyone else wants to add about anything? 
continue moaning for a bit. Wrong, it does kind of feel like that at the moment, and it, which, which which part of me thinks is a bit of a shame because yeah, yeah. it's this is a big thing we've got through this week. We've got there as as you joked earlier, but quite right. saying by mostly capitulating on everything. Um, the big challenge is there's much more to be done though, and the Northern Ireland, the Northern Irish border, is still the light that that kind of screams because everything else you can, on everything else you can see the UK government capitulating with little domestic political effects. Yeah. So the challenge of some form of you know European-led court, if push comes to shove, it'll bottle it and actually the you know the, the hot Brexiteers will scream, but it's not going to cause the dissolution of the Tory Party or anything else. Um, the DUP have been happy to go along so far with the wording in this agreement saying, well, you know, we understand that it's the backstop. So, listeners, just cast your mind back. So there is a backstop clause in here which says, if the UK and the EU cannot find alternative methods of ensuring absolutely no border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, then Northern Ireland will remain inside the customs union and within the single market for goods that would create a hard customs border between mainland UK and the Republic and Northern Ireland, or it would involve the whole of the UK remaining in the single market for goods and the customs union. This is something that cannot be fudged without significant political collateral. Yeah, this is, we, we go back to the red lines, don't we? Yeah. Some of the red lines have to fall for uh, any other solution to work, yeah. essentially. Um, and that's that's again just been kicked down, kicked down the road. Because because this this kind of the backstop option is option number three. Number one is you find some way of doing it within the FTA. Number two is you get yeah, yeah, yeah. magical unicorn rainbow glittered bloody yeah. drones to scan everyone's barcode. The truth is, absolutely everybody, including the companies who deal with all these kind of stuff, say one and two are not going to happen. Yeah, it is just not plausible. There was, there was another, another thing uh, which I saw, so a report has been done, uh, I can't remember who's done by, but HMRC have had some involvement with it, and the Cabinet have seen it, mm-hmm. saying that there is simply no border on Earth where, That's right. yeah. where, you know, where this would work. There's no, there's no precedent for making this kind of thing work like this any, anywhere. Um, and you know, all all the people tell us that even if we do figure out a system for making it work, it would take it would take beyond twenty twenty one to implement that system in order for it to work anyway. It, it just goes back to the point that this this is good in terms of political progress, and you know, it is it is a good thing that we've got this agreement, but none of it still really translates into you know proper you know real implementation of Brexit or in a legalistic sense. Uh, tying Brexit down, what Brexit actually looks like. Not none of that has really moved forward, and th- this is the issue when we're, we're dealing with businesses and trying to represent the voice of business. You know, how long how long have we been saying that businesses might be forced into making contingency plans based upon the worst case scenario? This hasn't made that decision any easier for them no. because it's a provisional agreement. There are loads of things that could bring it down. There are loads of reasons why 2021 might become 2025. And and then if you're a business that's having to make you know plans now as to what you how, how you're going to plan for the future, do you ba- do you do it based on a political agreement or you do you, do you do it based on a, a legal certainty? And if you if you do it on the second one, your only option is still to plan for the worst case scenario. Absolutely, no, very well put. So actually, it, does, it, it makes it makes the decision easier. It just doesn't make it any less painful. It's it's progress, but in reality, I'm not I'm not sure how much it changes anything. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, that's it. We don't have any legal progress. Yeah, that's the point. Yeah, legally, we are still at the point where no deal on the 29th of March is possible. 
Well, having listened to you both talk and weighed up uh, pros and cons of everything which you've said, I think I'd uh, select the uh, no border option completely. But uh, that's just my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 yeah. It, it's illegality doesn't concern yeah, you. Yeah, no, it's, exactly. It's, it's details. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll get someone else to work that out. Well, um, thank you very much, as always. Uh, thank you for listening. Um, if you want to get in touch with us on Twitter, Christian is at... I am currently at GMCC <laughs> underscore Christian. Currently, uh, currently. We'll come back to that. And, uh, you, Alex? Uh, I'm at GMCC underscore Alex, and I will be for a while. <laughs> I am at JB and more indefinitely. So, uh, yes, until next week, from me, Christian, Alex, goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.